there's things off in shadow and off way in light, off way in light, off way in light, off way in light. I wish, Phillips, you would not rationalize my remarks. If I recollect the phrases correctly, I hinted that you shrank from the chance of encountering primitive man in this whirling and mysterious city, and I meant exactly what I said. Who can limit the age of survival? The troglodyte and the lake dweller, perhaps representatives of yet darker races, may very probably be lurking in our midst, rubbing shoulders with frock-coated and finely draped humanity, ravening like wolves at heart and boiling with the foul passions of the swamp and the black cave. Now and then, as I walk in Holborn or Fleet Street, I see a face which I pronounce aboard, and yet I could not give a reason for the thrill of the loathing that stirs within me. HPPodcraft.com That is a paragraph from Arthur Mackin's The Red Hand, and you're listening to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com, I am Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey, and this is our free show of the month of August. Yes, hello, August. Glad to see you. Our reader there is Antonio Barroso, friend of the show. Excellent, excellent reader. Great job. Thank you, Tony. Thank you, Tony. Glad to have him on, and hopefully he'll be with us as we journey through this story, The Red Hand, which might take us more than one episode, I think. More than one episode. It's probably... Two, maybe three. We'll we'll see how this goes. You know, it's not just uh, Tony joining us. We also have a guest musician this week, Troy Sterling Neese. Oh, yeah. Well, we've had Troy's music on the show before. We have. He's an excellent musician, obviously. He does all of the, a bunch of the scores for the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society. He scored Call of Cthulhu and uh, The Whisper in Darkness, and he's done a bunch of their radio theater projects. Mm-hmm. And he's actually got a sale going on if you want to buy... His music, it's at uh, troysterlingneese.bandcamp.com. We'll link out to it from our show notes. But if you go there, use code HPLHS. You can get 25% off anything that he's got in that store, any of the music that he's got uh, until August 15th, 2013. Check it out. You won't be disappointed. I love his stuff. And him. He's a great guy. He is a great guy. And you know, his house, he lives in North Dakota got really rocked by some tornado force winds there that messed up his house and it's costing him a ton for the repairs. And so he was supposed to be coming to Providence. I know, for the Necronomicon. For the Necronomicon. We're going to be there. We're going to be there and we'd like to see him there, but he's having some problems getting it funded because he's got to repair his house. So guys, go over to his page and buy some music. Help him out. If he does enough in sales, then he can come join us at the Necronomicon Providence, which, by the way, is this August, 22nd through the 25th in Providence, Rhode Island. That is correct. And we'll be appearing on a couple panels, uh, and we're doing a live show, which we which we did our Kickstarter, which was quite successful. So we're going to be there doing our live show, and you could see us at two panels. I'm on one, Chad's on the other. And the live show, it's going to be that Saturday of the festival in the Thurber Ballroom of the Hotel Providence, and it's going to be at 5.30. Go over to their site, necronomicon-providence.com, and check out all the information uh about the other stuff that's going on that week. And I know it's going to be really fun. We're going to do our show. And then after that, they're going to have a big outdoor kind of music festival. I think Darkest of the Hillside Thickets are going to be playing. All right, yeah. Yeah, it's going to be yeah. pretty rocking. I'm really looking forward to it. So please, everybody, if you have a chance, come out to see us in Providence. We're going to have a lot of fun. Another quick plug I wanted to mention, I'm going to be at the Newcastle Traveling Man on August 17th, signing my new graphic novel, Trans Reality. That's right. So if you're in the Newcastle area, please come down, see me, 
Shake my hand. I'll sign your book. It'll be wonderful. Mm -hmm. Now, before we jump into the show, I want to talk a little bit about Arthur Mackin. Now, we've covered his stuff before. We did The Great God Pan, obviously, on the show. Who is he again? Let's do a little refresher. He's a Welsh writer. He was very much into mysticism and that there's this idea that there's a secret reality that exists behind the world of the mundane. He was writing near the end of the 19th century, kind of a contemporary of Algernon Blackwood. You know, his work has gone in and out of popularity quite a few times. Mm -hmm. But right now, I think there's actually a society called the Friends of Arthur Mackin. We should link out to that. I I think it's arthurmackin.org.uk. But they've got a lot of information about him there. Try to promote understanding of his work and and popularize it kind of the same way we do with H.P. Lovecraft. Yeah. And he was a big influence on H.P. Lovecraft. A lot of quotes from his work are used in Lovecraft's work, and they were kind of dealing with many of the same themes. Now, Lovecraft wrote, he didn't write about this story. He wrote about uh, the three imposters. Right, which we're going to do some some stories from the three imposters after this, but characters in the three imposters are actually the characters in this story, the red hand. So yes, uh, they share that in common. And about that book, the three imposters Lovecraft wrote here, we find in its most artistic form, a favorite weird conception of the authors, the notion that beneath the mounds and rocks of the wild Welsh Hills dwells subterraneously, that squat primitive race whose vestiges gave rise to our common folk legends of fairies, elves, and the little people and whose acts are even now responsible for certain unexplained disappearances and occasional substitutions of dark, strange changelings for normal infants. And later he says in the essay that this story, The Red Hand, returns to those little people that Mackin wrote about. Hmm. So we know we're going to get some of that. One thing about this story, The Red Hand, is it was written in 1895, which is right in the middle of Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes getting very popular. Oh, right, yeah. So this is a total contemporary of that. He's a contemporary. In fact, I think... um, Conan Doyle was a fan of Mackin's. They, I don't know if they knew each other, but uh, right. certainly were aware of each other's work. They dated for a while. They did have a little bit of a relationship. Uh, well, I should, shouldn't say date. It wasn't really what they did back then, but yeah, they courted for a while. The Oscar Wilde the controversy, they didn't really want the relationship to be public. Because, exactly. You know, so. I was joking. People, yeah, none true. of that's true. But I thought that this story really reminded me of Sherlock Holmes. It does. I think like two books had come out and he was starting to publish the stories in the Strand, so... Maybe he was, they were doing something similar, but this is like a Sherlock Holmes story if it were completely insane. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it is. It's a mystery. The story is, um, there's a murder in the very beginning, uh, which we'll, we'll mm-hmm. get to. I didn't see where it was going, I gotta say. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, I just thought it was, this is, is almost like a parody on a Sherlock Holmes story in that Holmes was always very much about the art of deduction mm-hmm. and taking clues and putting them together to kind of assemble a story. Whereas the writer kind of investigator character in this story believes in the theory of improbability, which is just like wait around and pretty soon the answers will present themselves. Yeah, I don't quite get it. We'll talk about it when we get to it in the story. But his, his yeah. theory doesn't really hold a lot of water with me. And uh, <laughs> I, I thought it would. I don't think it would work, but um, it provides fruit for him in the story. So, yeah. you know, maybe I'm wrong. So you are wrong. It's proven in the story. <laughs> It <laughs> it's proved in this fictitious story that it works. Yeah. Why don't we talk about it a little more and then maybe if some points about Mac can come up during our discussion, we can talk about it. Yeah, of course, of course. Uh, as they come up. So the story starts off that we heard that little excerpt in the beginning with these two guys talking to each other about some ancient or not fish hooks. Right. Phillips is an ethnologist, which is like an anthropologist. Right. But it's concerned with peoples and how they relate to each other, basically. And this other guy is Dyson, who is... A writer? Is that what he is? Yeah. I'm not really sure exactly what he does. When they're talking to each other, he says, you've been working at your old task. And Dyson says, always the chase of the phrase. Yes. I shall grow old in the hunt. So I assume he's a writer. He's a writer. Yes. I I wasn't. That's what I got out of it. But I wasn't sure if that's exactly what he is. In fact, he's a snooty writer because he says, 
yeah, I'm still trying to write. It's a consolation to me that there aren't even a dozen people in England who know what style means. Oh, snap. Yeah, well, it sounded Lovecraftian to me in a way, you know? Oh, right, yeah. Like, he probably writes in this really outmoded <laughs> way. Right, right. And he's like, my writing's great. It's everybody else who doesn't have any taste. <laughs> <laughs> Very, yeah, 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 could be. It made him a funny character to me. I was like, this guy thinks very highly of himself. I imagine that he probably is very poor, but dresses like he's not. Yeah. You know, I just kind of started coming up with an idea of who Dyson is in my head. I think he's insane. (laughs) (laughs) But insane like a fox. It works out for him. I think he's insane because he posits right away, why are you messing around with those fish hooks? Because... Phillips is looking at him and saying, these are, you know, these are really old. And he's like, all you're doing is hanging out in your office looking at some fish hooks. If you went out into London, you'd find out there are actual primitives out there still. I mean, he's saying this. There are people from prehistoric times who are still hanging around in society. Basically, poor people, I think is what he's saying. There's not rich. There's not rich people. (laughs) Really? Yeah, of course he is. There's no of these, calls them troglodytes, which is kind of this mythical ancient peoples that existed before man. It's a Greek concept. And there's, Mm -hmm. there's, there aren't any actual troglodytes, but there's this idea that there were a man-like species that existed before, and he calls them that. And he says, oh, yeah, they're out there intermixed with our society. If you go down into the bowels of society, the kind of the dark places of the city, you're going to find them. Yeah, doesn't he say when he's walking around there, he'll look at, I'll look at somebody, and I just kind of hate them. <laughs> yeah. And I couldn't tell you why I hate them. Therefore, they must be from prehistoric <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Therefore, they're cave people. They're cave people that are a threat to my people. That there's lesser humans out there and then they're hiding within the poor. Right. And that's, right. I mean, that's pretty bad. I mean, a lot of this Arthur Mackin stuff, as well as most of the things that we read, are obviously written by pe- people from affluent families. There's sort of this disdain mm-hmm. for the working class that always rubs me the wrong way. I hear you. And this is the same kind of thing. You know, like, well, oh yeah, there's troglodytes and they're down in the poor part of town. So let's go down there and mm-hmm. check them out, which is what happens eventually. Let's see. I, I see what you're saying. I really do. But it's also easy to ignore in this, I think a little bit. Because to me, I thought I I contextualize it as sometimes I'll be, you know, I'm at the bank and I'm in line and somebody turns around and looks at me in my head. I'm just like, shut up, go away. <laughs> you know? Well, and it's not because I'm prejudging them because of anything no. other than just sometimes I see people and I'm like, I just don't like the way you look. Yeah. Go away. Well, actually, I mean, you do that, right? Maybe this is a little juvenile of, of me, but a buddy of mine used to call people that were sort of off shamblers. <laughs> and it wasn't like, not necessarily, weren't necessarily poor people, even though no. some of them were, obviously. Sure. But it's just people that looked like they were trying to pretend to be human. Yeah. From another world. And they're dressed up in, as a, in their human outfits and they're walking around and they look really uncomfortable in their skins. They seem to have that look on their face like they're afraid they're going to get caught at any moment yeah that was a shambler to us so any every once in a while we'd be out and just see somebody that seemed off and you go hey dude shambler see that that's how i felt i didn't feel like this was necessarily an economic i I understand what you're saying and i think you can look at it that way but i mean i don't think there's anything inherently noble about being poor it's just a situation that a lot of people find themselves in, and there's just as many like weirdo crazies you know what i mean it's not like of course because you're poor you're there for a good person or something like no. that. So, I mean, I think there's a lot Nobody's of... Uh, saying that. That would be the most convenient place for the shamblers to be hiding would be out in there. I mean, you're not going to be a politician making six figures no. a year and then be a shambler. I mean, you got to hang out where people aren't going to notice you. Right. <laughs> that's that's kind of what I think it is more... I mean, there, at least that's how I'm reading it, you know? Well, I think you're being a little generous with the author, mm-hmm. and this really is more about the haves and sure. the have-nots. Sure. Hey, look, we're actually like having a real literary discussion here. It's amazing. I know. How did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> 
when Dyson says there are primitive people in London, Phillips, he thinks he's being clever. He says, sure, yeah, certainly there are people with some primitive tastes in London. Lowbrow. He's, he's thinking yeah. he means lowbrow people, just unclassy. And Dyson is saying, oh, no, 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 for real. I think there are cave people. <laughs> there are troglodytes. There are shamblers in London. And- right. He means like, you know, slopey foreheads, dragging the knuckles on the ground. Yes. Not human creatures. Right. That are still practicing insane religious arts from the dawn of time. They're here. And you know what? Let's go out for a walk and I'll show some of them to you. Yeah. I bet we I bet we can find them. And there's this kind of section right here in the story where he gives some more detail about London and about the streets. And it's obvious that Mackin spent a lot of time in London. You know, Arthur Mackin, he lived in London. He's Welsh. And where he grew up was had a lot of Celtic and Roman influence and medieval influence. And all of that had a really strong impression on him. But also he spent a lot of time in London, especially before he published Great God Pan and became somewhat famous for it. He worked as a journalist, did kind of odd jobs, but he was very poor and he didn't always have work. And when he wasn't working, he would go on these long walks around the city. And he really got to know it quite well. I think that's apparent here. Yeah, absolutely. And I I mean, I've only been to London a handful of times. I live up Mm -hmm. north, but I I recognize some of these streets that he talks about. And I've been on a few of them. And I sometimes wonder, what were these like 100 years ago? That's the extent of my my investigation. (laughs) I just wonder it for a few moments and then I go on about my day. It's funny when they go to a really squalid part of London. You know, I mean, it's like a really dark alleyway. Yeah. And Phillips is getting kind of concerned with where they're going. He actually looks around and he says, you know, I don't think I've ever been in a neighborhood more unpleasant or more commonplace. And then Dyson (laughs) says, more mysterious, you mean. (laughs) (laughs) Which I thought would have been the perfect time for somebody to jump out and be like, give me five bucks or I'll stab (laughs) you. That, yeah. Dyson just has to eat his words. Okay, that wasn't that mysterious. We just got beat up. Yeah, it was a really stupid idea to come to this part of town. Well, he gets down to um, this par- actual part of town. There's also a lot of Screever artwork, uh, which is the chalk paintings that people do on the sidewalk. What? A- Screever, that's what that means. Screever. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's what a Screever is. He says a Screever. And if you recall, in Mary Poppins, Dick Van Dyke's character was a Screever. And what? Yeah, that's the whole- He was like whole- a chimney sweep guy. He was a chimney sweep, but he, he did many jobs. He was poor. He didn't just have <laughs> one job when you were poor. He was a I chimney see. sweep. He was a Screever. Mm-hmm. Now, a Screever, when you do these works, you do these- chalk paintings and people would pay, drop you money if they liked your, you know, it's like a street performance kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And if you remember in the, in the movie, he draws a drawing and they all go inside of it. And that's the whole animated oh. sequence of Mary Poppins. It's they go inside one of his, his drawings. And well, you know, why was he poor if he can actually draw chalk paintings that you can then enter into and dance and sing around in? You can only do that if Mary Poppins is present. Oh, okay. I was going to say, man, I'd, I'd charge a lot for that. She has the power. <laughs> Mary Poppins. She does have the power. I'm very attracted to Mary She's Poppins. She's pretty foxy. It's yeah. uh, I don't know what's going on with that. Anyway, so there's a lot of chalk around uh, this yeah. particular part, and, and that factors into the story here. Because they go down into a dark alley, and uh, they discover something they weren't quite expecting. Phillips was bolstering up his courage to declare that he had had enough of the excursion, when a loud cry from Dyson broke in upon his thoughts. Stop, stop, for heaven's sake, or you will tread on it! There, almost under your feet! Phillips looked down and saw a vague shape, dark and framed in surrounding darkness, dropped strangely on the pavement and then a white cuff glimmered for a moment as Dyson lit a match, which went out directly. It's a drunken man, said Phillips very coolly. It's a murdered man, said Dyson.
What? They just kind of come across a dead guy. That surprised me. I didn't expect that. I didn't expect that. No, this whole story was was great because I didn't see anything coming. (laughs) Well, they call out for the police and pretty soon a a copper shows up. There's blood everywhere, right? Yeah, there's a big puddle of blood. It's obvious that his neck was slashed. His throat was cut. Right. And when they get a little light on it, they see that the victim is somewhat wealthy. Yeah. He's uh, dressed in really nice clothes. kind, of, And he also has a gold watch that's mm-hmm. in his pocket. So immediately they're like, well, if he was robbed, somebody would have t- taken that watch. So obviously yeah. this isn't a robbery. This is something else has happened here. And there's a, some kind of dark flinty stone that gleams like obsidian they yep. find next to the body. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a it's a primitive knife. And it is the the murder weapon and Phillips can identify it. He says, well, I guess that's like 10,000 years old by the way it was, mm-hmm. it was made. So this is exactly what they were talking about. <laughs> but it's a little different than what they expected. You know, they thought maybe they'd see evidence, but they didn't know that the evidence would be a dead body. No. Right. I think Dyson even feels a little bad. Oh, he totally feels bad. And he says that he goes, yeah, I came down here kind of on a, on a lark and thought it'd be funny to point this out. And now we've stumbled on this murder. But it gives them obviously a sense of purpose because the rest of the story is going to concern what happened to this person who was murdered. Right. And we, uh, a cockney, of course, shows up to deliver. Some, Dick Van Dyke. Yeah, some Dick Van Dyke shows up to tell them, <laughs> oh, I know who that guy is. He's a big shot doctor. His name's Sir Thomas Vivian. I was in the hospital about six months ago and I, you know, he would come around every once in a while. He's, he's a good guy. That's too bad. Actually, Chad, it was Orspital. <laughs> he was in the Orspital about six months ago. <laughs> <laughs> Some phonetic writing in there. Yeah. Um, so we know who the victim is. We know that he's this doctor. He's wealthy. And that he was killed with a prehistoric knife. Yep. But there's another important clue at the murder scene. There is a chalk drawing right by the body. It's almost mm-hmm. as if it was looking at the body. The light from the inspector's lantern was shining full on it. And I saw something that looked queer to me. And I examined it closely. I found that someone had drawn in red chalk... A rough outline of a hand, a human hand, upon the wall. But it was the curious position of the fingers that struck me. It was like this. And he took a pencil and a piece of paper and drew rapidly, and then handed what he had done to Phillips. It was a rough sketch of a hand seen from the back, with the fingers clenched and the top of the thumb protruded between the first and second fingers and pointed downwards, as if to something below. Talking about this, they have left the the murder scene. That's why he's drawing this for him. Yeah, he feels bad that he brought Phillips down here and they saw a murder victim. So he spirits him away. And at a later time, Dyson says, I've actually gotten pretty concerned with this. And there's something that you didn't notice. And he's describing it to him. And that's what we heard there. This weird symbol that's on the wall. It's like I was trying to do it with my hand. It's a fist. You make a fist. But instead of having your thumb on the outside, you stick it under your your index finger. Gotcha. And then the, the, the thumb is kind of pointing down downwards to the ground, which is, I've never heard of that before. That's I haven't either, but, but Phillips has. He identifies yeah. it. He says that's one of the most horrible signs connected with the theory of the evil eye. It's still used in Italy, but there could be no doubt that it's been known for ages. It's one of the survivals. It's something that's still around from pre-man times or prehistoric times. And that's pretty much it. That ends the, the first chapter. They're hot on the scent. And then the next chapter is called The Incident of the Letter. About a month later, Dyson and Phillips get together again. Dyson is still obsessed with this Sir Thomas Vivian murder. He's still looking into it and stuff. And uh, mm-hmm. Phillips actually comes clean here and he goes, you know, I, maybe I was a little harsh about saying that those fish hooks were legitimate. You know, let's let's talk about this hand business, this red hand, because it's it's interesting to me. And I want to put a little energy into it because yeah. this might help prove things 
to your side of thinking that parts of primitive culture still exist in our culture that they've kind of hung on. It seems like that night they were so shocked by what they found that Phillips kind of believed in that moment. Yeah. But now he's taken that back a little bit. Oh, right. About the weapon. He thought that the weapon was definitely caused by somebody that was from a primitive culture that right. was still existing. Yeah. He said he believed that at once, but then he thought about it and he goes, well, actually, no, what I think happened was that probably an Italian stole this knife and they were maybe this guy Vivian was going to buy the knife from him or there was some kind of deal went south and then that's mm -hmm. what is what happened that's all it is it was just some Italian guy and he put the mark there because anybody that kills people's they're nuts and right. he wanted to make a mark to kind of prove that he'd been there and that's Phillips's explanation it's pretty reasonable yeah but it's also kind of crazy well he just says follow the line of least resistance and you'll find there's no need to bring up primitive man and in that respect I understand what he's uh, saying yeah and I agree I agree with that yeah. but but also this is very Sherlock Holmes in fact it's pretty similar to a study in Scarlet which is the first Sherlock Holmes story the inciting incident of that is that somebody's written a, a word on the wall over a dead body. Right. It also has that setup where there's an investigator who's with the police force who has a theory. And of mm -hmm. course, it's simple-minded and just wrong. That's exactly what happens here. <laughs> Philip says, ah, it's obvious. It was just some Italian. And he did this to him. And then he put the symbol on the wall because that's what Italians do when they're angry. And Yeah. And, that, <laughs> and that's what happened. Dyson is saying, well... I got some more information that I think is going to change what you think about. Right. Because he's been obsessed with the case and he's studied up on everything. Well, he also discovers that talking with the investigators, he found out that there was another knife, like a brand new knife that's used by mm -hmm. sailors that was found under the body and it was unused. There's no blood on it at all. Yeah. So that means that Vivian probably was wielding this knife. And this guy, whoever it was, slit his throat with this obsidian knife. Somehow, you know, he just fell on the knife that's been unused. And why, so why did he have a knife? You know, also, though, but if he, I mean, the knife that they found is a better knife than this prehistoric tool. Right. Which is almost like an axe, really. Or a hatchet. Like a hatchet, yeah. Why, if this knife was available to them, to him, if it wasn't Sir Vivian's, if it was yeah. his, why didn't he use that instead of this weird hatchet? Right. I mean, there's obviously something significant about the murder weapon, more than just that it was something convenient. That exactly. Had. Also, another point is that, okay, this drawing was dr uh, put on the wall. They mm. realized he was that it got dark. Let's see. It went dark about 930 and he was murdered soon after that. So mm -hmm. if that's the case, that means, and this was a really dark alley. It means that this guy had to draw this drawing in the dark. Or it was already there. Or it was already there. Now, if the drawing was already there, it seems really strange that this murder would happen right where that hand is so maybe mm -hmm. it was some kind of occult thing or maybe it was he doesn't know but it's it's obviously raising way more questions and this whole right. italian uh signature theory is not making as much sense it's not holding up very well because there's more information that's all right the weirdest piece of information and i gotta admit it was a little it was kind of difficult for me to understand exactly what he was talking about i had to read this passage a couple of times but they found in the victim's pocket and in Sir Vivian's pocket, a note. And it's written in this very curious script. It's English. Yeah. But the way that the words are formed suggests that it was written, written maybe by a Persian who had learned English. Right. Because it's similar to that kind of writing. Yeah. And that's the note that's written by one person. But then also, this guy has a little memorandum book. It's yeah. his own. That's full of, you know, really mundane pencil jottings. And it's like grocery lists and names of a, a hotel he likes and a book and this kind yeah. of thing. But that's, they're also written in a script that's very similar to the one that matches his note. So the two people, the, the note and his 
personal book, they're sharing something in the way that they write. Yeah. His wife knows that it's his memorandum book because there are details that, that she knows about Vivian's life, even right. though she's never seen the book. Mm-hmm. But that, but she says that's not how he normally writes. No, he writes in a regular standard English kind of way. And so there's this specialized, weird style of writing English on this note. In fact, since he's a physician, I'm sure his wife is like, that's the first legible thing I've ever read <laughs> that he's written. <laughs> So he goes, well, you know, here, here's the note. Why don't, Phillips, why don't you read it? Yeah. And Phillips does. Hand did not point in vain. The meaning of the stars is no longer obscure. Strangely enough, the black heaven vanished or was stolen yesterday. But that does not matter in the least, as I have a celestial globe. Our old orbit remains unchanged. You have not forgotten the number of my sign, or will you appoint some other house? I have been on the other side of the moon and can bring something to show you. Dyson says, so what do you think that's all about, Phillips? And Phillips is like, oh, whatever. It's just a bunch of nonsense. And he goes, well, you know, I think it might be a code. Well, yeah, it was written... Three days. Three days. Yeah, three days before the murder. And so that must mean that there's something connected to it. And he goes, so let's forget about your stupid Italian theory because obviously... (laughs) All the stuff I'm giving you now blows that out of the water. Yeah, he says something funny about that. What does he say? I am still in a very early stage. It is too soon to state conclusions, but I think I've demolished your Italian. I've demolished your Italian. I've demolished your Italian. Well, I don't know if he's demolished it, but he's just certainly brought up other facts that require a a revision of what may have happened. Exactly. Phillips doesn't really want to be doing this kind of thing. No. He doesn't, you know, he's not interested in continuing to to figure this out, but Dyson, he seems to have a lot of passion for solving this mystery. Yeah, he's really onto it. And he goes, you know what? You can stay here, Phillips, and stick with your books and do all your nonsense. I'm going to go hit the streets and find out what the heck's going on. And that's what he's about to do. He's about to go down into the dirty slums, start interviewing people in the urban setting, and find out what he can about this murder. I yeah. think that uh, we should save that for the next episode. Yeah, we yeah. can go from there to the end of the story. It's some pretty interesting stuff. I want to thank Troy for letting us use his music this episode. We're going to use it again in our next episode, which is a subscribers-only episode. So please go to Troy's website and pick up some music at uh, his Bandcamp site. The link is in our show notes. It's great stuff and something you should own. Absolutely. And I want to thank our reader. Tony Barroso, thank you for laying down some silky tones. We hope we'll have him back with us on the next episode as well. Also, folks, if you are planning on going to the Necronomicon in Providence, Rhode Island, come check us out. We'll be on two of the panels and we have got our live show, which I believe there's still some seats available. We'll just be around. We'll be around. Because we're going to be recording and doing convention coverage so if you go uh, chances are we'll probably end up talking to you yeah go to our facebook page you can see pictures of our mugs so you can track us down yeah we'll be there so that's going to be amazing and i'm looking forward to it hope to see you all there everybody and that's all we have for this week i am chad pfeiffer and i'm chris lackey and you've been listening to the hp lovecraft literary podcast at hppodcraft.com hppodcraft.com <laughs> <laughs>